On Thursday, the 16th of September 2021, a former Essex police officer walked into a police station. He joined the force in the 1980s, aged in his early 20s. Now in his 60s, he'd retired several years ago. But he was not visiting the station to catch up with old friends. He was here to be questioned over allegations that he had repeatedly sexually assaulted a child. Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Unfinished, Shoebury's Lost Boys, a true crime podcast produced by the Archon Investigations Unit. My name is Charles Thompson. It's been 15 months since our last episodes investigating the alleged police cover-up of a paedophile ring in Essex. In the intervening months, a lot has happened. Our last episode, back in August 2020, was all about the police and the justice system secrecy surrounding this case. Throughout my six-year investigation, I've been through round after round of appeals and formal complaints to try to access official information. At almost every turn, public bodies have used technicalities and loopholes to attempt to avoid handing over documents. Documents which, in other countries like the USA, I would be able to simply walk into a police station or a courthouse and ask to see. But this year, I've scored a series of victories. In these two new episodes, I will tell you how I fought against state secrecy, and won. In doing so, I unlocked more than a thousand pages of hidden files, set a new legal precedent, and unearthed shocking new secrets about the scandal of the Shubury paedophile ring. If you haven't already heard our earlier episodes about Shubri, then please go back and give them a listen now, as this episode will not make a huge amount of sense to you otherwise. But I think we could all do with a quick recap of the series so far. In 2015, while working at a weekly newspaper called The Yellow Advertiser in Essex in the east of England, I was approached by a retired NHS manager called Robin Jamieson. Robin told me about concerns he had been trying to get investigated for years about failures in a police investigation. The case had involved a paedophile ring, operating out of Shoebury, a town in Southend on the Essex coast, in the 1980s. I was district psychologist covering part of Essex at Southend. I was alerted to a problem by one of my staff that there'd been a couple of paedophiles arrested in Shoebury, a big case with a lot of children involved and starting to look like a network, that the police were saying they would have to restart the investigation because of the scale of the problem, but it never happened. And they just dealt with two suspects without beginning, even beginning to look at the wider network of abuse. Ever since that first meeting with Robin, I've been on a mission to get to the bottom of a catalogue of irregularities and unanswered questions in the case. I tracked down other retired professionals who, like Robin, 
had been haunted for decades by their work with the dozens of known victims who they believed had been failed at every turn by the state. We also heard from some of the children involved in the case, now adults, about how they felt failed by the authorities. We heard how police declined to interview numerous victims or act on their information, how Essex County Council refused to provide counselling to the majority of the victims, many of whom went on to lead short or miserable lives. The paedophile ring's leaders, Dennis King and Brian Tanner, were eventually convicted, but instead of being given long prison sentences as punishment for their years of abuse, they were given a jaw-droppingly generous plea deal, and none of the other abusers ever appeared to have been pursued. And we heard how, almost 30 years later, I uncovered evidence that Dennis King had been a registered police informant. But a number of questions remained unanswered. How much did the police know about King and Tanner's activities, and when did they know it? Can the leniency with which they were treated just be explained by the fact that King was apparently a registered police informant, or were police officers themselves also involved in the ring, as some of the victims' testimonies suggested? What had Dennis King supposedly been informing on, and why was a police officer regularly seen at King's flat, and another flat where underage girls were reportedly sold for sex? We knew King's generous plea deal had freed him to abuse more children. But what had Tanner done with his life after the Shubri prosecution? Why had repeated modern reinvestigations of the case been hobbled by inaction and bizarre decision-making? And would another reinvestigation, announced by the police just as our final episode was about to be released last year, prove any more successful? In these two new episodes, we will find out the answers to some of those questions. This episode will explore what we have found out about the modern police reinvestigations. The next episode will look at new secrets we have unearthed from the past. At the start of this episode, I described how one police investigation into this case is still live. This autumn, a former police officer was questioned by detectives about his alleged abuse of one of the Shubury victims. To understand how we got here, we have to rewind five years. By spring 2016, I had been in touch with Robin Jamieson for a year. In that time, our work together had come to the attention of Nick Alston, the Police and Crime Commissioner for Essex. He helped to secure an official review of the original Shubury paedophile ring investigation from 1989-1990. After Essex Police announced that review in 2016, we were told that my reporting had prompted five new complainants to come forward. Those new complainants triggered a new police investigation, to be carried out alongside the historic review into the old one. That new investigation was called Operation Sands. But in late 2017, both operations ended in disappointment. The review concluded that there was no evidence of any failures or wrongdoing in the historic police investigation. The new police investigation was dropped after police decided not to seek any charges. 
but by summer 2018, serious doubts were developing about just how thorough the recent police operations had actually been. I was coming across source after source who had concerns about the integrity of both the historic review and Operation Sands. In a briefing, Detective Superintendent Tracy Harmon, who led the review and Operation Sands for Essex Police, told me that all of the police's own records on the original King and Tanner case, other than a few primitive computer files, had been lost or destroyed. So actually working out what was done back then and what wasn't, what we don't have is a complete picture, I won't lie. We don't have full records from a police perspective of exactly what was done, but what we do have is um, an old account on Holmes, and Holmes is our major incident recording system. This had meant that the review would succeed or fail based on its ability to secure the cooperation of sources who had first-hand recollections or paper records from the original case. At the start of the review, Robin had handed the police a stack of original documents to help get them started. In those documents were the names of numerous people who'd been directly involved in the case. But by 2018, after the review had ended, I was now slowly tracking those sources down myself, and was shocked to find that every time I located one of them, they told me they knew nothing about any recent review by Essex Police. When I found one of those sources, who'd worked for one of the charities contracted by social services to help the Shubury victims, he told me the following. I'm amazed that this Shubury review thing has gone on and nobody's contacted me or my colleagues. It shows you how seriously they are taking it, the same level of seriousness that they were taking it last time, or the conspiratorial views that they're taking it very serious, and therefore they're very seriously trying to stop anything coming out. Between Robin handing the documents to the review in 2016, and Essex Police closing down the review in 2017, nobody had contacted these sources. Some of them, I discovered, had been sitting on mountains of paper evidence detailing irregularities and alleged corruption in the original investigation, evidence completely at odds with the review's final conclusion that there was nothing to suggest any corruption or wrongdoing by police. In addition to the sources I was actively tracking down, there was one crucial source who found me. He first contacted me in spring 2017 to tell me that the police had shown up on his doorstep asking questions about two men they believed he may have known in Southend-on-Sea, Dennis King and Brian Tanner. The man told me his initial reaction was to burst into tears, but once he had calmed down, he had told the police that yes, he had known King and Tanner. They had sexually abused him for a protracted period of his childhood. But, he added, it wasn't just King and Tanner. He had been abused by lots of people, and one of them had been a policeman. He had told the two police officers the name of the policeman who he said had abused him from the very first time they came to his house. But he grew increasingly angry and frustrated at what he felt was a lack of action. He contacted me, and I eventually reported on the many problems in the police's handling of his case. I codenamed him Victim Six. He stressed each time we spoke that from the first time the police had shown up at his doorstep, 
he had made clear that he'd been abused by far more men than just King and Tanner. But the officers seemed to want to keep steering him away from the wider network of paedophiles. His words throughout this podcast series are read by an actor to conceal his identity. I'm remembering other scenarios that have happened. I can remember being in the company of a police officer. I was in a police officer's front room, but basically she's only investigating King. All she wants to do is bang on about King. Victim 6 stopped cooperating with the police over his frustration at their attitudes. But a few months later, in autumn 2017, Essex police announced that Operation Sands was being closed down with no charges brought against anybody. At that stage, Victim 6 decided to cooperate after all. He was worried that offenders might remain free, posing an ongoing risk to children, when his testimony might have helped to corroborate others and convict them. But the strangeness continued. Instead of reopening Operation Sands, Victim 6 was dealt with as an entirely new case. There were months-long gaps in communication by police. The officer assigned to his case confided in him that she was still in training, and that this was her first ever case in the child abuse team. She said she didn't have access to any of the material from Operation Sands, so she was having to start from scratch, without the other five complainants' information. What was going on? By summer 2018, an Essex police insider had contacted me to say that they too were concerned at the way things were progressing. They advised me to request certain materials under the Freedom of Information Act, a piece of legislation which forces public bodies to produce data and documents unless the contents are exempt for reasons such as privacy laws or national security. I couldn't obtain documents relating to victim Six's case, as that was an ongoing police investigation, but both the Shubury Review and Operation Sands had already been closed down, so they were fair game. Public bodies are required to answer freedom of information requests within 20 working days, but little did I know, upon submitting my request, that I had just blown the start whistle on a three-year battle with Essex police. I felt that police investigative files, things like interview transcripts, witness statements and other documents, were almost certain to be withheld under freedom of information, because of the volume of personal information they would contain, but I was interested in what the police had and hadn't done. Was there a reason that they hadn't contacted the sources in Robin's documents, for example? Had they ever even read them? The advice from my police source was that the best way of building a chronology of the way that they had investigated the case was to demand copies of all the emails that the team had been sending back and forth. I also requested copies of any reports compiled by the officers on the outcome of either the review or Operation Sands. I sent off my request in July 2018. According to the law, Essex Police should have disclosed all the information four weeks later, or given me a reason why they could not. After chasing it multiple times, my request was eventually answered in July 2019, a year after I had submitted it, but an extraordinary amount of information had been redacted. In one 123-page PDF file, 121 pages had been entirely blanked out, 
On one of the other two pages, the only piece of unredacted information was a line detailing a conversation with me at the Yellow Advertiser. It felt almost like the force was mocking me and my information request. In fact, I would later find out that a year earlier, a senior member of Essex Police staff had sent an email to the Chief Constable about my reporting, essentially branding me a conspiracy theorist. In that email, to the highest-ranking police officer in all of Essex, the staff member wrote, The good points about this is that the YA's work has led to more victims coming forward and has given us more to go on. The risk is that the style of those journalists is predisposed towards there's a conspiracy. Questioned about this email, Essex Police said that the member of staff who sent it no longer worked for the force. A spokesperson said, Selected emails, taken out of context having been sent by individuals some years ago, do not represent the views of Essex Police. The press office is proud to support journalists and make sure the people of Essex hear the very latest about the work our teams do to catch criminals and keep people safe. Essex Police had withheld a huge amount of information under three different exemptions. The first exemption was personal data. The second, which I found to be absurd, was that the information detailed how police had investigated the case, so releasing it might teach other paedophiles how to evade capture. The third reason, most intriguingly, was that some of the information had to be withheld, because it had been provided to the police by the security services. I filed an immediate complaint about what I felt was excessive redaction of the documents. That was eventually answered in July 2020, another full year later. A small amount of extra information was released, but not much. Essex police refused to disclose any mentions of Dennis King or Brian Tanner, even though they were dead and therefore not covered by data protection laws. When questioned, they said that this secrecy was for operational reasons. With that, I reported Essex Police to the Information Watchdog, the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office. Essex Police responded to my complaint by adding yet another exemption to the list. They now claim that they were withholding information on King and Tanner because releasing it might upset any surviving loved ones that either man might have. In other words, Essex Police was opposing a campaign for transparency by child sexual abuse victims and the charity workers who had supported them, on grounds of hypothetical upset that it might cause to any hypothetical loved ones of the two ruthless paedophiles responsible for their abuse. I fired off a nine-page letter to the ICO explaining exactly what I thought of Essex Police's excuses. That was in January this year. In May, just shy of three years since my original request, I received a series of emails from Essex Police. Before the ICO could make an official ruling on the force's behaviour, the force had U-turned on many of its redactions. It had just disclosed to me more than 1,100 pages of emails and investigation documents. Questioned as to why the force had persistently breached the 20-working-day legal time limit for responding to freedom of information requests, a spokesperson said, 
Essex Police places a great deal of importance on being transparent with the public we serve. Every day our force receives a high level of requests under the Freedom of Information Act, and our small team works hard to ensure that where the legislation allows us to share information, we do so in compliance with the law. For each request we receive, we have to ensure we strike the balance between transparency, operational sensitivity, protecting the anonymity and rights of victims, ensuring compliance around information relating to suspects as appropriate, and of course the cost to our force in time and resource of collating sometimes extremely large volumes of information, such as was the case in this instance. To date, we have provided documents running to over 1,000 pages in relation to this matter, and every disclosure made has had to be considered in intricate detail to ensure compliance with not just the Freedom of Information Act, but various other pieces of legislation, such as the Sexual Offences Act, GDPR, and Data Protection, which has understandably taken some time. The released files showed that at the office of Nick Alston, the Police and Crime Commissioner for Essex, concerns were being raised about the constabulary's handling of the case within weeks of the review being announced in 2016. An exchange between Mr. Alston and a member of his staff, conducted late at night in spring 2016, was partly redacted. But what wasn't redacted was this line from Alston himself. We cannot keep stressing regarding the Essex police statements. We do, though, need to be able to recall the examples that cause us most concern. It is likely that these concerns related to what a number of other people involved in the case felt were a series of incorrect statements made in the police's initial press release. Robin and his fellow whistleblowers had spoken to Alston and the police about two issues at the same time. One had been the poor handling of the Shubury investigation by the police. The other had been the poor performance of Essex Social Services at the time, in both the Shubury case and other cases. But when the police publicly announced their review in 2016, they appeared to conflate the two issues, resulting in a vague and arguably somewhat inaccurate appeal for witnesses, which never even mentioned Shubury. In the press release, the chief constable was quoted as saying that the police had allegations, but no victims, no suspects, and no locations. I spoke to Robin about his response to that police press release. So, from your perspective, the statement that there were no victims, what is the problem with that? Well, we, we had a, a list of 50 potential victims, the names of children who visited King's Flat. And no suspects? Well, two suspects had been charged the location was exactly known, the suspects were known, and 50 of the suspected victims were named. It was interesting to know that, like the whistleblowers, staff in Nick Alston's office were voicing concerns about Essex Police's statements, and that Alston was advising his staff to keep note of the most concerning examples. What for, I wondered. But we would never find out. Alston would leave office a few months later, and the staff member whose email he'd been replying to was not far behind him. In came a new regime, which had not been involved in bringing the Shubri matter to light, and did not have the knowledge with which to scrutinise it. A separate Freedom of Information request revealed that all discussion of the Shubri case within the Commissioner's office essentially died when Alston left. 
But despite the mangled and misleading nature of the police press release, we knew, because the police had told us, that five new complainants did come forward. Until now, we have known nothing about most of those new complainants who came forward, but the documents disclosed by Essex Police in May this year have provided us with new details. By August 2016, three new complainants had come forward. We know this thanks to an internal report amongst the disclosed materials released in May this year. The complainants' identities and even their genders were redacted by Essex Police, but some details were disclosed. The first complainant claimed that they had been abused by Dennis King in multiple locations in Clacton-on-Sea, on the Essex coast. They said that they had been abused in a public toilet and had then been taken to a flat where other boys and girls were present. They participated in a filmed interview with Essex Police in 2016, but withdrew their cooperation in 2017. No explanation was given as to why. The 2016 police report did note that the individual had come forward to report being abused as a child in Essex more than 10 years earlier, but at that time, they had not identified Dennis King as one of their abusers. The second new complainant's gender was identifiable by the nature of the abuse they described. She claimed to have met King in the 1970s. She described him as driving a big car and identified him as part of a network of adults who would trade in children. She said she saw money changing hands. She described being taken to a large house in a rural location and being raped by Dennis King. She said she had witnessed him abusing boys on other occasions. She also described being abused by King and others in a pub in London, which she said she had reported to the Metropolitan Police in the 1990s. Police notes said that this complainant had named another person as a fellow victim, but when the police had approached them, they had denied being involved. Essex police confirmed that the complainant had previously approached the police in London and Surrey to report childhood abuse, but she, like the Clacton complainant, had not given the name Dennis King to officers on those occasions. The third new complainant, who had come forward by August 2016, said that they had met King in Southend in around 1990 at the age of 16 and had developed a friendship with him. He described King providing him with booze and said the pair had performed sexual acts on one another. He said King had then introduced him to other men of varying ages and instructed him to perform sex acts on them, sometimes while King watched. The disclosed materials included a second report, which revealed that in the following months a further two complainants came forward. Complainant number four believed that they had met King in around 1985, aged around 11, and had been involved with him for about four years. Crucially, this complainant named the person that they said had introduced them to King. As we heard earlier, in 2016, Robin Jamieson had handed a stack of documents to Essex Police to help with the review. Amongst those documents had been a list of suspected victims compiled by charity workers assigned to the original case. When police had checked that list, it contained the name of the individual who complainant number four said had introduced them to Dennis King. So complainant number four knew specific detail which had never been placed in the public domain. They told the police that they went to King's home on a number of occasions and could remember being raped 
at least six times. But police notes said that in their filmed interview, complainant number four was unable to provide any real detail about their abuse. They had also made reference to wanting compensation, and had then stopped engaging with officers. Complainant number five said that they had been introduced to King at age 14 by a friend in around 1988. They said they were taken to King's property, where they were asked if they wanted to earn some extra money. The rest of the detail of their allegations was redacted by Essex police, but we know that they did participate in a filmed police interview and agreed to participate in an ID parade. However, there was a problem with complainant number five. They reported having already disclosed their abuse to the police in the original case in 1989-1990. Essex police noted that because all of the original records from that case had been lost or destroyed, and thus this complainant's original account was now unavailable, it could be suggested, were police to seek charges, that the prosecution was an abuse of process. A defence lawyer would be able to argue that the loss of these original records meant it was impossible to know whether the complainant was telling a consistent story. Robin had spent decades trying to get justice for the Shubury boys, so I asked him how it felt to hear that the police's loss or destruction of their own records may have prevented one victim from pursuing a prosecution. I'm shocked every time it happens, but there is a pattern there's a black hole with information and evidence in the police. This solved the mystery of what the five fresh complainants in 2016 had told the police when they came forward. But within the records disclosed by Essex Police in May this year were some more documents. Documents which suggested that there may in fact have been seven people who made allegations in 2016, not five, as I had been led to believe for the last five years. The five complainants we had been told about appeared to be people who had come forward in response to the police appeal, but other documents detailed how officers working on the historic review were proactively trying to track down some of the known victims who'd been listed in 1990. Those officers hit lots of dead ends, but they did end up making contact with two of them, and both of them disclosed offences. The first of the two named the person who he said had taken him to King's flat when he was 14. He said that King had offered him £15 to engage in a sex act. When he refused, he said King fought him to the ground and then raped him. He confirmed that he had reported this to the police at the time. The second said King had raped him on a number of occasions between the ages of 11 and 14 sometimes in the presence of Brian Tanner. He named the person who had introduced him to King. Reading between the redactions, it appears that the individual who made the introduction was sometimes paid, but this complainant was not. The complainant was described as vulnerable and referred to an independent sexual advice advisor. In November 2016, they participated in a police interview. In December 2016, Dennis King was arrested and questioned by Essex police over the offences alleged by the new complainants. He provided a prepared statement in which he denied all of the alleged crimes. And ultimately, we know from my briefing with Officer Harmon that police decided, without referring the case to the Crown Prosecution Service, not to file any charges. 
Now, who made the decision that the evidence was not there for a charge? Was that a police decision or CPS decision? Police decision. The released Essex police files did contain a document from March 2017 in which some guidance was sought from the Crown Prosecution Service about how to proceed with the case, and the CPS provided some advice. However, the report was completely redacted on grounds of lawyer-client privilege. So for now, Essex Police's reasoning for not bringing any charges over the numerous fresh allegations remains a mystery. While I was busy doing battle against Essex Police's Freedom of Information team, Victim 6 was involved in his own dispute with the force. In summer 2019, police had dropped his case, just like all the other complainants, without bringing any charges. But he knew that numerous investigative avenues had not been pursued, so he filed a formal complaint. Just as our last episodes were released in August 2020, Essex Police's Professional Standards Department upheld nine complaints by Victim 6. Complaints which echoed the concerns of other sources I had been speaking to about the lackadaisical way in which the other modern reinvestigations appeared to have been conducted. The force's internal investigation squad found what they called inexcusable failures in Victim 6's case, including numerous viable leads which were never followed. Among the details they had uncovered was that a year before the police showed up on Victim 6's doorstep, another male had made similar allegations about the same retired police officer Victim 6 had named as one of his abusers. The ex-cop had been accused in 2016 of sexually grooming a child. In 2017, Victim 6 had given his name to the police. On the recommendation of the force's internal affairs squad, Essex Police announced in August 2020 that it would reopen Victim 6's case. Thirteen months later, that retired officer arrived at a police station to participate in a voluntary interview. It remains to be seen whether that interview will lead anywhere, but as it stands, this ex-officer appears to be the only one of Victim 6's many abusers who police are looking into. In response to criticisms levelled at the modern reinvestigations into the Shubury Ring, an Essex Police spokesperson said, In February 2016, Essex Police launched a review of a previous investigation into allegations of historic child sexual abuse. During the course of that review, specialist detectives from our child abuse investigation teams carried out extensive inquiries interviewing numerous witnesses and victims. As a result of our review, in April 2017, a further allegation of non-recent child abuse was reported. Sadly, despite extensive investigation, this has not resulted in criminal charges. In regard to Victim 6's ongoing investigation, an Essex Police spokesperson said, A man was voluntarily interviewed on the 16th of September in connection with an investigation into allegations of non-recent sexual abuse. Our inquiries are ongoing. There still remain many unanswered questions about the apparent shortcomings in the police's reinvestigations of the Shubury paedophile ring, questions which, sadly, were not all answered by the documents I won access to. Why did Essex Police never track down and interview the sources named in the documents Robin had given them? How could the review conclude 
that there was no evidence of corruption or wrongdoing in the original investigation, when Robin's documents had contained numerous contemporaneously recorded allegations against officers. How had the review missed the fact that Dennis King was a registered police informant? In the words of Essex Police, maybe I'm just predisposed to believe in conspiracy theories. Or maybe, as we'll hear in the next episode, the past still held plenty of dark secrets about the Shubury Ring. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatron.com forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. All money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you.